Hatchet, Chapter 10. He could not at first leave the fire. It was so precious to him, so close and sweet a thing, the yellow and red flames brightening the dark interior of the shelter, the happy crackle of the dry wood as it burned, that he could not leave it. He went to the trees and brought in as many dead limbs as he could chop off and carry, and when he had a large pile of them, he sat near the fire. Though it was getting into the warm middle part of the day, and he was hot, and broke them into small pieces and fed the fire. I will not let you go out, he said to himself, to the flames, not ever. And so he sat through a long part of the day, keeping the flames even, eating from his stock of raspberries, leaving to drink from the lake when he was thirsty. In the afternoon toward evening, with his face smoke smeared and his skin red from the heat, he finally began to think ahead of what he needed to do. He would need to get a large wood pile to get through the night. It would be almost impossible to find wood in the dark, so he'd had to have it all in and cut and stacked before the sun went down. Brian made certain the fire was banked with new wood, then went out of the shelter and searched for a good fuel supply. Up the hill from the campsite, the same windstorm that had left him a place to land the plane, had that only been four, three days ago, had dropped three large white pines across each other. They were dead now, dry and filled with weathered dry limbs, enough for many days. He chopped and broke and carried wood back to the camp, stacking the pieces under the overhang until he had what he thought would to be an enormous pile, as high as his head and six feet across at the base. Between trips, he added small pieces to the fire to keep it going, and on one of the trips to get wood, he noticed an added advantage of the fire. When he was in the shade of the trees breaking limbs, the mosquitoes swarmed on him as usual. But when he came to the fire or just near the shelter where the smoke eddied and swirled, the insects were gone. It was a wonderful discovery. The mosquitoes had nearly driven him mad, and the thought of being rid of them lifted his spirits. On another trip, he looked back and saw the smoke curling up through the trees and realized for the first time that he now had the means to make a signal. He could carry a burning stick and build a signal and perhaps attract attention, which meant more wood, and still more wood. There did not seem to be an end to the wood he would need, and he spent all the rest of the afternoon into dusk making wood trips. At dark, he settled in again for the night next to the fire with a stack of short pieces ready to put on, and he ate the rest of the raspberries. During all of the work of the day, his leg had loosened, but it still ached a bit, and he rubbed it and watched the fire, and for the first time since the crash, thought he might be getting a handle on things, might be starting to do something other than just sit. He was out of food, but he could look tomorrow, and he could build a signal fire tomorrow and get more wood tomorrow. The fire cut the night coolness and settled him back into sleep, thinking of tomorrow. He slept hard and wasn't sure what awakened him, but his eyes came open and he stared into the darkness. The fire had burned down and looked out, but he stirred it with a piece of wood and found a bed of coals still glowing hot and red. With small pieces of wood and careful blowing, he soon had a blaze going again. Whew, that had been close. He had to be sure to try and sleep in short intervals so he could keep the fire going. And he tried to think of a way to regulate his sleep, but it made him sleepy to think about it and he was just going under again when he heard a sound outside. It was not unlike the sound of the porcupine, something slithering and being dragged across the sand, but when he looked out the door opening, it was too dark to see anything. Whatever it was stopped making that sound in a few moments, and he thought he heard something sloshing into the water at the shoreline, but he had the fire now and plenty of wood, so he wasn't worried as he had been the night before. He dozed, slept for a time, awakened again just at dawn, 
gray light and added wood to the still smoking fire before standing outside and stretching. Standing with his arms stretched over his head and the tight knot of hunger in his stomach, he licked toward the lake and saw the tracks. They were strange, a main center line up from the lake in the sand with claw marks to the side leading to the small pile of sand then going back down to the water. He walked over and squatted near them and studied them, trying to make sense of them. Whatever had made the tracks had some kind of flat, dragging bottom in the middle and was apparently pushed along by legs that stuck out, out to the side. Up from the water to a small pile of sand, then back down to the water. Some animal, some kind of water animal that came up to the sand to, to do what? To do something with the sand? To play and make a pile in the sand? He smiled. City boy, he thought. Oh, you city boy with your city ways. He made a mirror in his hand, a mirror of himself, and saw how he must look. City boy with your city ways, sitting in the sand, trying to read the tracks and not knowing, not understanding. Why would anything wild come up from the water to play in the sand? Not that way. Animals weren't that way. They didn't waste time that way. It hadn't come up for the water. It had come up from the water for a reason, a good reason, and he must try to understand the reason. He must change to fully understand the reason himself or he would not make it. It had come up from the water for a reason, and the reason he thought squatting, the reason had to do with the pile of sand. He brushed the top off gently with his hand, but found only damp sand. Still, it mu there must be a reason, and he carefully kept scraping and digging until, about four inches down, he suddenly came into a small chamber in the cool, damp sand, and there lay eggs, many eggs, almost perfectly round eggs the size of table tennis balls, and he laughed because then he knew. It had been a turtle. He had seen a show on television about sea turtles that came up onto beaches and laid their eggs in the sand. There must be freshwater lake turtles that did the same, maybe snapping turtles. He had heard of snapping turtles. They became fairly large, he thought. It must have been a snapper that came up in the night when he heard the noise that had awakened him. She must have come then and laid eggs. Food! More than eggs, more than knowledge, more than anything, this was food. His stomach ached, tightened, and rolled, and made a noise as he looked at the eggs as if his stomach belonged to somebody else or had seen the eggs with his own eyes and was demanding food. The hunger, always there, had been somewhat controlled and dormant when there was nothing to eat, but with the eggs came the scream to eat. His whole body craved food and with such an intensity that it quickened his breath. He reached into the nest and pulled the eggs out one at a time. There were 17 of them, each as round as a ball and white. They had leathery shells that gave instead of breaking when he squeezed them. When he had them heaped in the sand in a pyramid, he had never felt so rich. He suddenly realized that he did not know how to eat them. He had a fire, but no way to cook them, no container, and he never thought of eating a raw egg. He had an uncle named Carter, his father's brother who always put an egg in a glass of milk and drank it in the morning. Brian had watched him do it once, just once, and when the runny part of the white left the glass and went into his uncle's mouth and down the throat in a single gulp, Brian almost lost everything he had ever eaten. Still, he thought, still. As his stomach moved towards his backbone, he became less and less fussy. Some natives in the world ate grasshoppers and ants, and if they could do that, he could get a raw egg down. 
He picked one up and tried to break the shell and found it surprisingly tough. Finally, using the hatchet, he sharpened a stick and poked a hole in the egg. He widened the hole with his finger and looked inside. Just an egg! It had a dark yellow yolk and not so much white as he thought there would be. Just an egg. Food. Just an egg he had to eat. Raw. He looked out across the lake and brought the egg to his mouth and closed his eyes and sucked and squeezed the egg at the same time and swallowed as fast as he could. Ugh! It had a greasy, almost oily taste, but it was still an egg. His throat tried to throw it back up, and his whole body seemed to convulse with it, but his stomach took it, held it, and demanded more. The second egg was easier, and by the third one, he had no trouble at all. It just slid down. He ate six of them, could have easily eaten all of them and had not been full, but a part of him said to hold back and save the rest. He could not now believe the hunger. The eggs had awakened it fully, roaring so that it tore at him. After the sixth egg, he ripped the shell open and licked the inside clean and then went back and ripped the other five open and licked them out as well and wondered if he should eat the shells. There must be some food value in them, but when he tried, they were too leathery to chew and he couldn't get them down. He stood away from the eggs for a moment, literally stood and turned away so that he could not see them. If he looked at them, he would have had to eat more. He would store them in the shelter and eat only one a day. He fought the hunger down again and controlled it. He would take them now and store them and save them and eat one a day. And he realized as he thought about it that he had forgotten that they might come. The searchers. Surely they would come before he could eat all the eggs at one day. At one a day, he had forgotten to think about them and that wasn't good. He had to keep thinking of them because if he forgot them and he did not think of them, they might forget about him. And he had to keep hoping. He had to keep hoping. Hatchet, Chapter 11. There were these things to do. He transferred all the eggs from the small beach into the shelter, reburying them near his sleeping area. It took all his will to keep from eating another one as he moved them, but he got it done, and when they were out of sight again, it was easier. He added wood to the fire and cleaned up the camp area. A good laugh that cleaning up the camp. All he did was shake out his windbreaker and hang it in the sun to dry. The berry juice that had soaked in and smooth sand where he smooth and smoothed the sand where he slept. But it was a mental thing. He had gotten depressed thinking about how they hadn't found him yet. And when he was busy and he had something to do, the depression seemed to leave. So there were things to do. With the camp squared away, he brought in more wood. He had decided to always have enough on hand for three days, and after spending one night with a fire for a friend, he knew what a staggering amount of wood it would take. He worked all through the morning at the wood, breaking down dead limbs and breaking or chopping them into smaller pieces, storing them neatly beneath the overhang. He stopped once to take a drink at the lake, and in his reflection, he saw that the swelling on his head was nearly gone. There was no pain there, so he assumed that it had taken care of itself. His leg was also back to normal, although he had a small pattern of holes, roughly star-shaped, where the quills had nailed him. And while he was standing at the lake shore taking stock, he noticed that his body was changing. He had never been fat, but he had been slightly heavy with a little extra weight just above the belt, his belt at the sides. This was completely gone, and his stomach caved into the hunger, and the sun had cooked him past burning, so he was tanning. And with the smoke from the fire, his face was starting to look like leather. But perhaps more than his body was the change in his mind, or in the way he was, was becoming. I am not the same, he thought. 
I see, I hear differently. He did not know when the change start started, but it was there. When a sound came to him now, he didn't just hear it, but he would know the sound. He would swing and look at it, a breaking twig, a movement of air, and know the sound as if somehow he could move his mind back down the wave of sound to the source. He could not know he could know what the sound was before he quite realized he had heard it. And when he saw something, a bird moving a wing inside a bush or a ripple on the water, he would truly see that thing, not just notice it as he used to notice things in the city. He would see all parts of it, see the whole wing, the feathers, see the color of the feathers, see the bush and the size and the shape and the color of its leaves. He would see the way the light moved with the ripples on the water and see that the wind made the ripples and which way the wind had to blow to make the ripples move in that certain way. None of that used to be in Brian, and now it was a part of him, a changed part of him, a grown part of him, and the two things, his mind and his body, had come together as well, had made a connection with each other that he didn't quite understand. When his ears heard a sound or his eyes saw a sight, his mind took control of his body. Without his thinking, he moved to face the sound or sight, moved to make ready for it, to deal with it. There were these things to do. When the wood was done, he decided to get a signal fire ready. He moved to the top of the rock ridge that comprised the bluff over his shelter and was pleased to find a large, flat stone area. More wood, he thought, moaning inwardly. He went back to the fallen trees and found more dead limbs, carrying them up on the rock until he had enough for a bonfire. Initially, he had thought of making a signal fire every day, but he couldn't. He would never be able to keep the wood supply going. So while he was working, he decided to have the fire ready, and if he heard an engine or even thought he heard a plane engine, he would run up with a burning limb and set off the signal fire. Things to do. At the last trip to the top of the stone bluff with wood, he stopped, sat on the point overlooking the lake, and rested. The lake lay before him twenty or so feet below, and he had not seen it this way since he had come in with the plane. Remembering the crash, he had a moment of fear. A breath-tightening little rip of terror, but it passed and he was quickly caught up in the beauty of the scenery. It was so incredibly beautiful that it was almost unreal. From his height, he could see not just the lake, but across parts of the forest, a green carpet, and it was full of life. Birds, insects, there was a constant hum and song. At the other end of the bottom of the L, there was another large rock sticking out over the water, and on top of the rock, a snaggly pine had somehow found food and grown bent and gnarled. Sitting on top, sitting on one limb was a bluebird with a crest and a sharp beak, a kingfisher. He thought of a picture he had seen once, which left the branch while he watched and dove into the water. It emerged a split second, split part of a second later. In its mouth was a small fish wiggling silver in the sun. It took the fish to the limb, juggled it twice and swallowed it whole. Fish! Of course, he thought. There were fish in the lake, and they were food. And if a bird could do it... He scrambled down the side of the bluff and trotted to the edge of the lake, looking down into the water. Somehow, it had never occurred to him to look inside the water, only at the surface. The sun was flashing back up into his eyes, and he moved off to the side and took his shoes off and waded out 15 feet. Then he turned back and stood still with the sun at his back and studied the water again. It was, he saw, after a moment literally packed with life. Small fish swam everywhere, some narrow and long, some round, most of them three or four inches long, some a bit larger, and many smaller. 
There was a patch of mud off to the side leading into deeper water, and he could see old clam shells there, so there must be clams. As he watched, a crayfish looked like a tiny lobster, left one of the empty clam shells and went to another, looking for something to eat, digging with its claws. While he stood, some of the small round fish came quite close to his legs, and he got and he tensed, got ready, and made a wild stab at grabbing one of them. They exploded away in a hundred flicks of quick light, so fast that he had no hope of catching them that way. But they soon came back, seemed to be curious about him, and as he walked from the water, he tried to think of a way to use that curiosity to catch him. them. He had no hooks or strings, but if he could somehow lure them into the shallows and make a spear, a small fish spear, he might be able to strike fast enough to get one. He would have to find the right kind of wood, slim and straight. He had seen some willows up along the lake that might work, and he could use the hatchet to sharpen it and shape it while he was sitting by the fire tonight. And that brought up the fire, which he had to feed again. He looked at the sun and saw it was getting late in the afternoon, and when he thought of how late it was, he thought he ought to reward all his work with another egg, and that made him think some kind of dessert would be nice. He smiled when he thought of dessert, so fancy, and he wondered if he should move up the lake to see if he could find some raspberries after he banked the fire, and while he was looking for the right wood for a spear. Spear wood, he thought, and it all rolled together, just rolled together and rolled over him. There were these things to do. Hatchet, Chapter 12 The fish spear didn't work. He stood in the shallows and waited again and again. The small fish came closer and closer, and he lunged time after time, but was always too slow. He tried throwing it, jabbing it, everything but flailing with it, and it didn't work. The fish were just too fast. He had been so sure, so absolutely certain that it would work the night before. Sitting by the fire, he had taken the willow and carefully peeled the bark until he had a straight staff about six feet long and just under an inch thick at the base, the thickest end. Then, propping the hatchet in a crack in the rock wall, he had pulled the head of his spear against it, carving a thin piece off each time until the thick end tapered down to a needle point. Still not satisfied, he could not imagine hitting one of the fish with a single point. He carefully used the hatchet to split the point up the middle for eight or ten inches and jammed a piece of wood up into the split to make a two-pronged spear with the points about two inches apart. It was crude, but it looked effective, and it seemed to have good balance when he stood outside the shelter and hefted the spear. He had worked on the fish spear until it had become more than just a tool. He'd spent hours and hours on it, and now it didn't work. He moved into the shallows and stood, and the fish came to him. Just as before, they swarmed around his legs, some of them almost six inches long, but no matter how he tried, they were too fast. At first, he tried throwing it, but that had no chance. As soon as he brought his arm back, well, before he threw, the movement frightened them. Next, he tried lunging at them, having the spear ready just above the water and thrusting with it. Finally, he actually put the spear in the water and waited until the fish were right in front of it, but still somehow he telegraphed his motion before he thrust and they saw it and flashed away. He needed something to spring the spear forward some way to make it move faster than the fish, some motive force. A string that snapped or a bow, a bow and arrow, a thin long arrow with a point in the water and the bow pulled back so that all he had to do was release the arrow. Yes, that was it. He had to invent the bow and arrow. He almost laughed as he moved out of the water and put his shoes on. The morning sun was getting hot and he took his shirt off. Maybe that was how it really happened way back when. Some primitive man tried to spear a fish and it didn't work and he invented the bow and arrow. 
Maybe it always was that way. Discoveries happened because they needed to happen. He had not eaten anything yet this morning, and so he took a moment to dig up the eggs and eat one and then reburied them, banked the fire with a couple of thicker pieces of wood, settled the hatchet on his belt, and took the spear in his right hand and set off up the lake to find wood to make a bow. He went without a shirt, but something about the wood smoke smell on him kept the insects from bothering him as he walked to the berry patch. The raspberries were starting to become overripe, and in just two days, he would have to pick as many as possible after he found the wood, but he did take a little time now to pick a few and eat them. They were full and sweet, and when he picked one, two others would fall off the limbs and into the grass, and soon his hands and cheek were, cheeks were covered with red berry juice, and he was full. That surprised him, being full. He hadn't thought he would ever be full again. Knew only the hunger. One turtle egg and a few handfuls of berries, and he felt full. He looked down at his stomach and saw that it was still caved in, did not bulge out as it would have with two hamburgers and a freezy slush. It must have shrunk, and there was still hunger there, but not like it was not tearing at him. This was hunger that he knew would always be there, even when he had food, a hunger that made him look for things, see things, a hunger to make him hunt. He swung his eyes across the berries to make sure that the bear wasn't there at his back and then moved down to the lake. The spear went out before him, automatically moving the brush away from his face as he walked, and when he came to the water's edge, he swung left, not sure what he was looking for, not knowing what wood might be the best for a bow. He had never made a bow, never shot a bow in his life, but it seemed that it would be along the lake near the water. He saw some young birch, and they were springy, but they lacked snap, somehow as did the willows, not enough whip back. Halfway up the lake, just as he started to step over a log, he was absolutely terrified by an explosion under his feet. Something like a feather bomb blew up and away in a flurry of leaves and thunder. It frightened him so badly that he fell back and down, and then it was gone, only leaving an image in his mind. A bird it had been, about the size of a very small chicken, only with a fantail and stubby wings that slammed against his body and made a loud noise. Noise there and gone. He got up and brushed himself off. The bird had been speckled brown and gray, and it must not be very smart because Brian's foot had been nearly on it before it flew. Half a second more and he would have stepped on it and caught it, he thought, and eaten it. He might be able to catch one or spear one, maybe, and he thought maybe it tasted like chicken. Maybe he could catch one or spear one, and it probably did taste like chicken, just like chicken when his mother baked it in the oven with garlic and salt and turned golden brown and crackled. He shook his head to drive the picture out and moved down the shore. There was a tree there with long branches that seemed straight, and when he pulled on one of them and let it go, it had almost a vicious snap to it. He picked one of the limbs that seemed right and began chopping where the limb joined the tree. The wood was hard, and he didn't want to cause it to split, so he took his time, took small chips and concentrated so hard that at first he didn't hear it. A persistent whine, like the insects, only more steady with an edge of a roar to it, was in his ears, and he chopped and cut and was thinking of a bow, how he would make a bow, and how it would be when he shaped it with the hatchet, and still the sound did not cut through until the limb was nearly off the tree, and the whine was inside his head, and he knew it then. A plane! It was a motor, far off, but seeming to get louder. They were coming for him. He threw down the limb in his spear, and holding the hatchet, he started to run for camp. He had to get the fire on the bluff and signal to them, get fire and smoke up. 
put all of his life into his legs, jumped logs and moved through bush like a light ghost, swiveling and running, his lungs filling and blowing, and now the sound was louder, coming in his direction. If right, not right at him, at least closer, he could see it all in his mind now, the picture, the way it would be. He would get the fire going, and the plane would see the smoke in circles, circle once, and then again, and wrangle its wings. It would be a float plane, and it would land on the water and come across the lake, and the pilot would be amazed that he was alive after all these days. All this he saw as he ran for the camp and for the fire. They would take him from here, and this night, this very night, he would sit with his father and eat and tell him all the things. He could see it now. Oh, yes, as he ran in the sun, his lake's liquid springs... He got to the camp, still hearing the whine of the engine, and one stick of wood still had a good flame. He dove inside and grabbed the wood and ran up the edge of the ridge, scrambling like a cat, and blew, and nearly had the flame feeding, growing when the sound moved away. It was abrupt, as if the plane had turned. He shielded the sun from his eyes and tried to see it, tried to make the plane become real in his eyes, but the trees were so high, so thick, and now the sound was still fainter. He kneeled again to the flames and blew and added grass and chips and the flames fed and grew and in a moment he had a bonfire as high as his head. But the sound was gone now. Look back, he thought. Look back and see the smoke now and turn. Please turn. Look back, he whispered, feeling all the pictures fade, seeing his father's face fade like the sound, like lost dreams, like an end to hope. Oh, turn now and come back. Look back and see the smoke and turn for me but it kept moving away until he could not hear it, even in his imagination, in his soul. Gone. He stood on the bluff over the lake, his face cooking in the roaring bonfire, watching the clouds of ash and smoke going into the sky, and thought, no, more than thought he knew then that he would not get out of this place. Not now, not ever. That had been a search plane. He was sure of it. That must have been them, and they had come as far off to the side of the flight plan as they thought they would have to come and then turn back. They did not see his smoke, did not hear the cry from his mind. They would not return. He would never leave now, never get out of here. He went down to his knees and felt the tears start cutting through the smoke and ash on his face, silently falling onto the shore. Gone, he thought finally. It was all gone, all silly and gone. No bows, no spears, or fish, or berries. It was all silly anyway, all just a game. He could do it a day, but not forever. He could not make it if they didn't come for him some day. He could not play the game without hope. He could not play the game without a dream. They had taken it all away from him now, and they had turned away from him, and there was nothing for him now. The plane gone, his family gone, all of it gone. They would not come. He was alone and there was nothing for him.